Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and welcome to those who are listening. We appreciate so much allowing us to be in your home this evening. Thank you. There's a number of ways that you can interact with us on tonight's live interactive program. You can call and be put live on the air, and the phone line is open, available, and awaiting your call. 268-462-7420 is the phone number to call. Again, if you'd like to speak live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 782 1454 Again, WhatsApp or text number is 268 782 or you can email us at crlthatstruth at gmail.com. That's one word, no space, no apostrophe. C-R-L-T-H-A-T-S-T-R-U-T-H at gmail.com. And the final way you can interact with us on tonight's episode is through Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment right there on your device in the comment section, and your question will get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Again, if you don't have a question, but you have a suggested topic that you would like us to consider discussing on a future episode, please share that. We look forward to your interaction on tonight's episode. Before we jump back into our topic tonight, we have a WhatsApp question that has come from the Southern Caribbean pastor. It starts out, what is the ancient landmark in Proverbs 22, 28, and 23, 10? And let me read those verses. Proverbs 22, 28 says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And Proverbs 23, 10 says, Remove not the old landmark. And enter not into the fields of the fatherless. Um, I think it basically uh, means what it says there. Um, it has to do with the under the Old Testament law when the land was being allotted to Israel. It was done by um, casting lots, and each particular tribe was given a particular geographical location. And then as people within that particular tribe uh, developed and they got property, that was marked off by, well, today we use stakes, but normally it was marked off by trees or rocks or whatever it is. And they always wanted the land to stay within the tribe. 
So, um, of course, if you have a piece of land which is parting with somebody and uh, a tree is blocking the lane of it, the temptation would be just the the, 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 the cornerstone or whatever and uh, to encroach on the person's property. But this was a clear restriction uh, that the boundaries uh, were not to be removed and once established were to be respected. And so this is basically having to do with actual physical uh, boundaries that were set um, in the property. You might want to look at Deuteronomy 1914 says, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Same thing there. You've got the marks of the location is demarcated by specific geographical marks, whether it be stone or trees or whatever, and you're not supposed to remove that because remember again, the land stays within the family. A person, for example, who ran into financial problems in the in the Old Testament could actually sell himself as a servant or what you would call a slave, but after seven years, it had to be restored to him, and then uh, or the year of Jubilee. It was always to avoid... Uh, I, I would say prolonged poverty, so that you're, you're, you you always had to have some kind of asset, and they never want to lose that. One generation might go into poverty, but the fact that the land returns to you, it gives you the, the possibility of re- raising yourself out of poverty again. It was a real biblical principle that, um, if followed, certainly would have uh, helped the persons to remain uh, and not going to deep property in a, in a long-term effect. It would help to reverse it within the seven years or the year Jubilee. Another verse that is important is Deuteronomy 27, verse 17. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 17 says, Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Again, because it is, it's, it's such a divine uh, principle and law that it stays within the family, within the tribe. A person who does that, there is a, a curse pronounced upon him, which in, involves often some kind of judgment of God on the individual. And uh, that is why it was such a crucial matter back in those days. However, there's also a spiritual application to this. And uh, a good passage is, is Hosea 5.10. Hosea 5.10 reads as follows. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. In the case here is dealing with the princes of the leaders of Judah who allowed idolatry and the immorality that comes with idolatry to enter the land. And uh, as a result of, of that, it is like, uh, in order, it caused the same kind of moral and spiritual disruption as removing the ancient royal marks and probably will cause financial disruption. So there's a spiritual principle there so that you'll find that many preachers who use this text will talk about the landmarks of biblical doctrine, that these have been established in Scripture, and therefore you don't move away from those things. And, and, and that kind of application. Or you talk about the, the moral law uh, that God is establishing His Word, and people now moving away from that. So the all, preachers would not be calling you back to spiritual doctrine or call you back to moral principles. Like, for example, the, the gay movement, moving away from the biblical standard and norm of what a marriage is or what, what a heterosexual relationship is or what, you know. That in itself, that is really biblical. And that principle comes out in Hosea, where the princes are condemned for allowing idolatry and immorality to enter, rather than hold to the standards that God had established. So it has an application, but the original application really has to do with the actual demarcation of property uh, 
that it stays within a tribe and stays within a family. And that's what that particular verse is about. You mentioned that we should hold to those doctrines or those things that previous generations held. How do you determine or how do you guard against just holding to tradition for tradition's sake? Because we've all met people who do that and put ele- elevate tradition to the level of Scripture. But how do we make sure we don't fall in that The trap? only safe uh, approach to that is to actually use the Scripture as a standard. For example, if the Bible doesn't speak very clearly on a matter, we've got to be very careful to let you know this is our conviction, but it's not a clear, defined teaching. For example, um, uh, take dress. Dress is a very nebulous concept. What is? What, how should we dress? The biblical principle is what? Modesty. 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 Now, what is modesty? See, And that changes over generations because way back in the 50s and the 40s, uh, a woman would have to have her, her dress right down to her ankle, quite frankly. That has been moving up and moving up and moving up. And I think as people become desensitized to exposure, uh, the concept of modesty changes. But uh, again, that's a very nebulous thing. I do know this, that when a woman's exposure goes beyond uh, above her thighs, the Bible says, God said, I'll, 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 um, I'll um, expose your shame. And he said, I will let your thighs be seen. So anything that goes above the knee, quite frankly, exposed the thighs, we know biblically that is simply something that is, is immodest, quite frankly. So that becomes a standard uh, as far as we're concerned when it comes to that kind of matter. Things like hair, in, in my day, you know, certain hairstyles and stuff like that. Uh, again, there's a biblical principle that a man shouldn't look like a woman in terms of the length of a hair. But again, what is long? And when you look at somebody like John Wesley, or you look at some of the other uh, great Christians, you'll find that they weren't... Uh, screwball shave people they always had some kind of hair that went even below the ears so but i think sometimes the reason why people do that because we the church got to be careful that it doesn't want to be like the world and when the world has a fad the church must avoid that fad because it loses its identity no that, that fad changes uh, it loses its, its 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 perception as being a fad, and maybe there can be uh, an adjustment there. But when the fad comes, let you take the tattoo thing today. No Christian should want to be a tattooed person because, quite frankly, it's a fad. That's a fad of the world. That's acting the world. There are other styles like hot pants that came in some years ago. Again, what woman would want to wear hot pants? To be very honest with you, it was immodest then. It's still immodest now. The idea idea of exposing your your armpits. And, and that kind of thing. I think you've got to be very, very careful with those type of things. But again, we've we got to make sure that we explain that this is a... And I think the church ought to set standards for its leaders. There are people who come to the church. You can't tell everybody what to... It's a public thing. But when it comes to the leadership of the church and those involved in different activities, the church ought to set so that they become a model and an example to others. But that's a... Uh, so I think the important thing here, Nathan, is to... Uh, Go to the Bible, see if the Bible speaks explicitly on a matter. If it's not speaking, is there a principle involved? For example, take the Bible that if a man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. There are certain things when you take into your body that destroy the alcohol. That's why Christians traditionally have been against alcohol. The content is always more severe than it was in biblical times as well. And we've seen the destructiveness of alcoholism, and therefore I think it's appropriate for the church to set standards on, on those type of matters. Pastor, we have Codrington on the line. Codrington, thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question quickly, please. 
Yeah, um, thank you for knowing that's how you know that um, I'm a child of um, maybe, maybe um, son, you know. But I have a question to ask you. So why did um, God have to suffer the Egyptians and them so before he let um, the Egyptians? So, and I will hold on on the line and then I will come in with more answer. What, what's the question? Can you repeat your question? Repeat your question, question, please. Why did God have to suffer the Egyptians and them before he let go the Hebrews and them? Well, why did the Egyptians okay, have to yeah. suffer before? There, there's a yeah. good explanation of that. I can't give the exact verse now, but I, I can pro- provide it at the end of the program. There's a, bo- a verse in Genesis where the Lord said that uh, the Jews and Abraham, uh, his descendants will go into be slaves in Egypt for 430 years and he gives a reason after 430 years they'll come out and he gives a reason the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet right in other words the nations that, that were going to Israel was going to displace in Canaan and uh, they had 430 years to change their behavior and to change their attitude uh, and the Lord was giving them that period of grace so while Israel is in Egypt uh, the Canaanites have got an opportunity to change their idolatry, change their lifestyle. Uh, so it's an act of grace on the part of God in dealing with the Canaanite people because Israel is going to go into Canaan after 430 years and wipe out every single one of them because they became a moral cancer to society. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there are certain depictions in, on, in, in the walls of the Canaanite society that is not proper even to show in public today. The atrocity was so bad, and if you read the book of Leviticus, and the Lord begins to mention the type of moral sins that they're committed, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, um, all of these uh, gross forms of sins are mentioned. The Lord said, I destroyed these nations, and I'm carrying you into, into this promised land, and I don't want you to follow their habits. So to answer your question, it was an act of grace on God's part to give the Canaanite population 430 years to to change their lifestyle. But also, Israel need to be disciplined and prepared. A nation coming out, I think 70 Israelites Israelites went into Egypt. It was in Egypt that became the, the crucible, or you might call it the wound, in which the nation was able to develop so that when Moses left, there were over about, two, about 2 million people that went out with him. So there had to be a place where the, the, the Israelites can develop into a concept of unity. And, and the Lord, he was preparing them for going into Canaan. So there's an act of preparation for the nation. And it's also an act of grace in dealing with the Canaanites. That's a, probably the best explanation I can give. Genesis fifteen sixteen. Can you says, read it, please? But in the fourth generation, they shall come thither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Yeah, if you read, uh, there's another verse somewhere in there, uh, either in the front, it'll give you a deadline, like 430 years. Or th- or that, then yeah, moving up three verses, verse Genesis fifteen thirteen says, And he said unto Abram, Know for a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Yeah, and and uh, there's also telling you that the the uh, verse telling you that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet right, but that's the whole idea: uh, grace and mercy towards these people that are going to be displaced. You know, there are a lot of people who say that think that God was barbaric. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you read ever read Dawkins' book on the God delusion. I've never read, read a man that has used such 
uh, evil, vulgar terms to describe God. But one of his charges against God, that God was brutal. He committed genocide. He, he obliterated men, women, children, and everybody, basically. in the But again, when you understand that you're given 430 years to repent, and the nations are in the Canaan nations have not repented, but gotten worse. Uh, God has a moral right uh, to destroy. Remember in in Romans chapter one, there are nineteen sins that are mentioned, and then Paul says, "Though that do the same, know that they're worthy of death." So uh, remember that sin brings death. And it's God's mercy that we who are allowed to per- perpetuate sin, that God hasn't judged us. But uh, as a moral judge of the universe, he has a right to deal with moral cancers, and he did it. But he acted in mercy as well. Codrington, thank you very much for your yeah, call. Yeah, um, okay, I, I hear the question. Is, uh, but don't you think that God was suffering the Egyptians and them now because they're suffering the people and them, um, his people? I was looking for that answer because, you know, he, the Israelites and them, the Egyptians and them was suffering his people. So he said he's going to harden, harden, fear hard to know that he is the Lord and God. And so no. So I was looking for that question. Well, here well uh, yeah, that, that's part of the answer as well. I mean, we didn't go into detail with that, but in case they want to put God hardening Pharaoh's heart, you'll find that Pharaoh hardened his heart first. If you read the account, God projected in the future is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But if you read the account, the stages, you'll find that God knew that Pharaoh would harden his own heart. And as a result of a hardening, God said, I'm going to harden your heart even more, etc., etc. But yeah, but God dealt with the the, the, uh, the Egyptians as well and sent judgment upon them. Uh, so he did, he did punish them. And then there's a passage in one of the prophetic writings which warns that Egypt will never be a superpower again. Remember that Egypt at that time was a major superpower. And as a result of what they did, uh, God's way of dealing with them is to bring them to the point where they will never be a superpower again. And despite the fact that Egypt today is one of the great Arab nations, it has no real uh, superpower um, um, identity whatsoever. I, I would like to say one thing. My, uh, Mr. Codrington, I know you keep saying you are a child of Mary, but I wish you were a child of Christ. And I hope that you really, really understand that Mary is not going to be able to help you in that day. If you don't have Christ, I'm going to suggest to you that no matter how much you call upon Mary, uh, it will prove utterly fruitless. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. He is the only name given on the heaven whereby a person must be saved. So I would ask you kindly to reconsider your position and make sure that you know Christ is your Savior and not uh, trusting on Mary uh, to somehow redeem you or to help you in that day because, believe you me, (laughs) she won't be able to whatsoever. Thank you for your call, Codrington, and very well said, Pastor. Uh, the verses you referenced there were, are found in Ezekiel 29, 14, and 15, talking about Egypt not being able to rise again. It says, And I will bring again captivity of Egypt, and will cause them to return into the land of Pathros, into the land of their habitation, and they shall be a, there a base kingdom, and it shall be the basest of kingdoms. Neither shall it exalt itself any more above the nations, for I will diminish them that they shall no more rule over the nations. Well, well read. Appreciate that. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.50. I don't know what the highlights are of your week, but one of the highlights of mine is this 90 minutes that we get to spend with you here on That's Truth. 
You're listening to the Radio Lighthouse, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. You can also join us on for this program on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can listen to the program, watch the program behind the scenes, and comment your questions right there on your device. You can call and ask your question. Be put live on the air by calling 268 462 7420. I know I just rattled that off quickly, so let me give that to you again to be put live on the air. 268 462 7420. Thank you for those who have interacted with us already in tonight's episode. If you'd like to send your question via WhatsApp or text message, send it to 268 782 1454. We have a, another WhatsApp question that has come in. Pastor, it says, Also, when a believer is saved by God, his sin is remembered no more. Why does it say in the Bible that we all have to give an account for ourselves before the judgment seat of God? Yet what sins shall we be giving an account to on that day? Is it past sins before our unsaved life or current sins which we have committed as a believer and the saved individual in Jesus Christ? Well, I think the best way to answer that question is probably refer to the text that the person is uh, indicated by the expression of views. And I think you'll find that in First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 15. Uh, once we can re- just read that for me, please. Yeah, First Corinthians three eleven to 15 says, For other foundation... Can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. What verse do you want me to go through? Go to verse 15, right through verse 15. Verse 14 says, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Yeah. The point that is being made here is that this is Paul's account that we will all, and he's referring here exclusively to believers. The believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and only the believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's another judgment coming called the Great White Throne Judgment that you find in the book of Revelation chapter 20, which has to do with the unbeliever. But here is the believer standing before God and giving account. Uh, let me say this. When it comes to, to sin, the sin question has been settled. This, the Bible makes that very clear. And uh, he is perfected forever them that are sanctified uh, by the Spirit. So the believer is safe and secure and respect the sin. When it comes to sin, God chastens the believer in this current dispensation. You read the book of um, Hebrews chapter 12. It speaks out about chastening, divine chastening. So, And I point out that uh, God will convict the person of sin. Depending on the person's response to that thing, if this person remains hardened, uh, God will begin to do an act of chastening in that person's life. And God sometimes will bring individuals into that person's life to to call them back to repentance. If that person remains adamant, remains, uh, would not change and continue persisting to sin, God's chastening becomes more severe. And it comes to a point where there's a sin unto death where God says to that individual, I've allowed you enough um, rope, 
uh, you have not given any kind of repentance. You haven't uh, changed your way. You become more hardened. And for God's glory, for his sake, so that his name does not become a reproach, God can remove a person in what you call a premature death. That is called a sin unto death. Okay? However, the other thing is that the person chasing can be restored to repentance. That is how God deals with the sin of the believer. But after, after, after death, we stand before God and we give an account. We are going to be judged for our works. Okay, that's what we may judge for. What what have we what have we built on Christ? Paul said, "I've laid the foundation, Christ Jesus." Every believer now is building something on that professional faith of Christ. So we're going to be judged for our. This is a matter of rewards and loss of rewards. If you go in uh, in the passage, you'll find that Paul talks about uh, the manifestation of our works. Look at verse thirteen. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work what sort it is. Yes, yeah, so what, what are you doing for the Lord? Uh, since you became a Christian, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're a pastor, are you a counselor, are you a, what are you doing? Uh, what capacity are you serving in, in, in the ministry? Of course, that might seem to be something that is spiritual, something that is um, deeply religious, but you may have other motives. Why do you sing in church? Is it to glorify God, to glorify yourself, to show you have a beautiful voice? Why do you play instruments in church, if you play instruments? Eh? Why do you teach Sunday school? Why do you even preach? Motive has a lot to do with that. And that's why I said what sort it is. What's the quality of what you're doing? It's not so much the quantity of what you're doing, but the quality that really matters, because we can be doing a lot of things, but for the wrong motive. So we are going to be judged. And notice that verse 14 tells us uh, that there's going to be rewards are they going to be lost? Verse 14 and 15. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. So there it is. You, 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 you uh, either have a reward or you suffer loss of a reward. But notice he says that it's, 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 um, it's, it's going to go through the fire. And the biblical concept here is the idea of judgment. Judgment is always perceived. Fire is always a matter of judgment. So you're going to a judgment seat of Christ. And in the illustration that Paul is using here, he has to use the word fire because he's talking about you build things with wood, hair, stubble, uh, use precious stone. The idea is that uh, it's like a fire sweeping through a property. And uh, what remains after the fire swept through the property is that which endures and that which is lasting. Uh, the wood here and the stubble is burn up. Uh, if you've got a stamp collection, that's burn up. But if you have gold and silver, even though it might be tarnished, it, it is still there because it's something enduring. It has quality to it. That's why Paul uses the illustration here. But when we stand before God, we're going to give an account uh, for what we have done with our lives after we put our faith and trust in Him. What have we built on what the foundation of Christ? And we are going to be rewarded either or we are going to lose the reward that we could have gotten had we done what we should have done. So this has to basically do with the, the uh, judgment over rewards. It's not a matter of dealing with sin. God deals with sin here and now. And uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you realize this, but your fact that you will physically die is part of your penalty for your sin. The wage of sin is what? It's death, right? So that question is dealt with, but the whole question that comes up is the whole matter of rewards. And um, you cannot be held for sins that you are forgiven for. Uh, Quite frankly, that is what you might call double jeopardy. There are some people who have committed a crime and were 
tried by their peers and discovered that they were declared innocent, they can't be tried for that same thing again because it's called double jeopardy, even in our our, our world in that regard. So when it comes to this whole matter of, of sin, the sin question is settled. Uh, Christ paid the debt for sin. And by the way, think about this. When Christ paid for my sin, uh, he also died for the sins of everybody before and everybody after. So the whole sin question is settled with God in terms of our standing with Him. And that's why there has to be chastening down here when we're dealing with this kind of... And if the chastening does not work, we have what you might call a premature death. We're removed uh, from the scene. Uh, or, or there's out of repentance and restoration. Uh, God deals with that. But when it comes to the, 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 the works that we do, the things that we do for the Lord, the things that we labor, Sunday school teacher, preachers, um, we get into counseling. Or even if you are called by God to be a medical doctor, and how do you have you used your influence in that capacity? Or you are a lawyer and you feel that God is this is your calling. How have you used that to advance the cause of Christ and to, uh, to help with the principles that the Bible uh, has established? So you're going to be held accountable for those type of things. And that's why judgment is coming for us in that regard. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is 8 o'clock. We still have one hour left in this episode of That's Truth. And let me encourage you to invite others to tune in. You can encourage them to tune in on 1160 AM online at radiolighthouse.org or at 92.3 FM. If you're listening to us on Saturday during the repeat, we are honored that you are listening. You can still send in your question. We won't answer it until next week, Tuesday, Lord willing. But we will welcome your questions no matter when in the week you want to send it in via WhatsApp or text to 268-782-1454. And one more question that has come in. Actually, before we go to that question, we have a caller that has just called in. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello? Thank you for calling. That's truth, and go ahead with your question, please. All right. Feel free to call back, and we will put you live on the air when you call back. Uh, the question that's come in via WhatsApp with regards to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and its advice about worship. Is it mandatory for women to cover their heads when praying or prophesying at home also? Look, I, I, this is a, a, a um, an issue that really doesn't carry much weight these days. But I, I feel uh, as a pastor, I really think that any married woman... Uh, really in the church, I really think it's proper for her to wear a covering. Um, I can I can go through Corinthians chapter 11 and give you five or six reasons why that should be so. Uh, the problem that we're faced with today is that often the church that you take over, the, the pastor that is there before you, normally have thought something different. And when you come into that situation, it can lead to all kinds of disruptions and divisions and uh, even the splitting of the church over these type of things. So, And it's not a major doctrinal issue in terms of uh, what you call a fundamental doctrine. But I do think that we have been very negligent in this matter. And I do feel I can do a study on that and show clearly that Paul argues very strongly that at least a married woman should have some kind of covering to indicate the headship of her husband. Now, the instruction that Paul gave in uh, Corinthians relates to the church. There's no indication that it relates to a person in the home, 
et cetera, et cetera. So I would not be inclined to take that particular uh, verse, which applies to worship within the local assembly, and then carry that over into into the uh, into the home. However, let me say this: if your conscience bothers you on this matter and you feel deeply convicted that this is something that is right and proper to do, I would recommend that you go with your conscience. Uh, God is greater than your conscience. If your conscience convicting you, there must be something there. But I think when it comes to the home, I don't believe it's applicable to the home situation, but certainly within the church, I think it's the right and proper thing to do. If you are interested in more information specifically about this topic, uh, early on when we started the program of That's Truth, Pastor did a program with Brother Erskine, and they covered this topic to some degree. And you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's a large picture of a microphone. You can't miss it. Right in the center is a circle that says podcast. Click on that circle, on that link, and then click on the That's Truth podcast. Click on the archive link. Look for episode number six, and that will be dealing with, uh, excuse me, it's not episode number six. It is, it is episode number 11. Episode number 11, and that deals with head coverings and pants on women. Thank you. Uh, Pastor, we have... The topic that we started, I believe, two weeks ago, and we're going to jump back into this again to the individual who was on the phone. Please call back, and we will put you on the air uh, as soon as you call back and with your radio turned down. We were talking or have been talking about the topic of child sexual abuse and can, for the person who's tuned in for the first time tonight, why are we even discussing this topic? Well, the, the, the fundamental reason we're doing it is because it's a major problem in society today. Um, when you consider one in three women, one in four or five men have experienced this, uh, when you sit in your church, about 20% of the people sitting in your church have gone through sexual abuse. Wow. So you've got to understand you're dealing with a real problem. Uh, and the fact is, uh, the danger isn't diminishing, it's increasing. And part of the reason why it's, uh, it's increasing is simply because of the proliferation of pornography, which has turbocharged men in particular. And uh, this is leading to a much graver problem than we had before. Uh, so I think, and, and, and it's in the interest of your child, to be aware that this is something that is very, very, very common. And you don't have to be naive any longer and bury your head in the sand saying, I don't want to face the reality that this is happening, uh, to your dismay and shame and your regret um, and, and to the hurt of your child. Uh, you might find that sometime later you just wished you had paid more attention to this matter than just uh, nonchalantly dismiss it as though it, it doesn't relate to you and can't happen within your family. Uh, it is something that is very, very real. A question that just came to my mind as you were talking about the proliferation of pornography and just lust in our society. Pastor, what advice do you have to a lady, specifically a Christian lady, who is walking through town, let's say Market Street, and we have all seen, it's disgusting, but the way that men will 
whistle, will just stop what they're doing and just stare at their bodies as they walk by. What advice do you have to a lady? Is she supposed to just take it? Is she supposed to stand up for herself? Or was that going to cause an issue? Well, I think it depends, Nathan. And I say what it depends. There are some women that dress provocatively. I mean, uh, if you are wearing a very tight pants, for example, exposing every cross, cre- crevice, every every angle of your body, um, you're virtually advertising, in my judgment, okay? So you want men to look at you. There's no question about that. So, uh, But if you are dressed decently and, and you are offended by it, um, I think you can give the person a very harsh look, uh, quite frankly, let them know that you don't appreciate what they're saying. You don't want to get into a confrontation uh, with that. But if you become cognizant of the fact that when you walk through town, and if, you, if, you're real, if you're not vain and you haven't f- tried to find your identity, identity and your sexuality, and uh, you'll find that for some reason when you go to tongue or whatever, uh, you can see that people are just admiring your body. Ask yourself, uh, what can I do to de- desist this? Because if you are arousing lust in a person, you just can't be concerned about yourself. Maybe maybe you're not dressed as, 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 as modest as you think you should dress. Ask your pastor, ask your mom, ask your dad, ask some good Christian uh, who's concerned about your testimony. Um, but um, if it happens, uh, if I was a woman and it happened to me and I was dressed modestly, I would I would certainly give a good stare down. And I might even say, listen, I don't appreciate it. Uh, some of these people just need to be told something because they just think that everyone wants to want to be irate. They think that that brings pleasure. And I think because of the norm within society that sex is, uh, and being sexy is, is more cons- more. <laughs> more um, appreciated than being godly or being Christian. I think that's the reality that we face today. But I don't think that it's proper, and I think that uh, a good, harsh look, uh, a, a, a word of, I don't appreciate um, your, your, what you're saying, whatever it is, and then a serious review of your dressing uh, and your modesty, I think that is something that needs to be considered as well. What about any advice you have for the husbands that are walking along with their wife and your instinct is to want to just push the guy or, uh, <laughs> well, when, well, when would, you know your wife is modestly dressed? Yeah, yeah. I would say that you don't want a physical confrontation, but there's nothing wrong in um, saying to the person, I don't appreciate this. Uh, this is my wife and uh, I'm offended by, by that and I would appreciate that you desist from it, right? But I would not um I would not try to get into a confrontation with the person. I think you also got to be uh you know go by your instinct uh does this person want to get in a confrontation with you want to get in a fight with you or whatever and does it deliberately? I think you're going to use a discernment in that um, but i I think that I'm not to show what the law is here in Antigua. Uh, in that regard, but I would I would probably next time I speak to one of the policemen in our church, for example, I would certainly find out if there are any. Uh, in, can you make a report that uh, this person is disrespecting your wife or something like that? You know, it's just seen as a uh, a sexual move on your wife. I've never really. Th- thought about that in terms of finding out what the rules and regulations, but it would be interesting to find out that maybe you could lodge a warning, let the person know, listen, if you keep continuing this, I would report you to the police or something. But something needs to be done if your wife is being disrespected, she feels threatened, uh, though she's being uh, irate, etc. I think that a husband ought to do something uh, within the laws to try to, to deal with that. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. 
Hi, right, my brother. How are you doing? Good hearing from you again, Mr. Williams. Yeah, yeah, you listen, but when I see what I, I had to get service, so. Uh, let me ask a question. Uh, let me tell you. Can I, if it's wrong for Christian to be in the midst of unbelievers playing games like cards, domino, or whatever? That's a very good question. Um, I know of a gentleman who was saved when I was in Barbados. My mom used to carry lunch for him every every Sunday. And uh, I remember going back after I was uh, pastoring in one of the other islands and going back. And my, my brother, who was not even a Christian, came to me and asked me a question like that. You think this guy should be playing dominoes all day with these unsaved people and cards all day and stuff like that. And my response to him is that I don't think it was good for his testimony and witness to be spending his time, wasting his time, uh, and because he was uh, he was handicapped, confined to a wheelchair, he would go out to the shop and spend the whole day and the guys would be drinking, but he'd be there and he'd be playing. I thought, I, I had to tell him, I don't think that was right, that was proper for that to be done. But again, it depends on the place and it depends on how is he using this occasion. Is he playing dominoes with the guys and is he? do they respect the fact that he's a Christian and he has some kind of influence on them while he's there? Like they're tempted to do something that's wrong or swear or curse it. Hey, the brothers here, you just can't use that kind of language. Well, he's a, a, a influence there in that, that regard. I'm not for cards. Um, I have a very strong feeling against cards, to be honest with you. And I, I don't think that uh, that is right and proper for believers to be engaged in, in a public forum. The other thing is, what impact is the people around him? What do you think about that situation? Do they know he's a Christian? And uh, there are people would make certain remarks. Oh, you shouldn't be here. Uh, you know, uh, how are you a Christian? I think a person should take those signals as an indication that they don't have any witness and they don't have any testimony and then to, to desist in those who say now if they're playing in the home and they invite a friend over or they go up and say a friend and they're playing domino that's something completely different but I do think in public um, if it is seen to be damaging to one's witness and one's testimony uh, I think the person should desist and it would be recommended that they don't get involved in that kind of ma- that kind of situation Okay, yes, I, I appreciate that very much because I, for myself, I find it looking good because I'm man busting all the bad words, looking yeah. how they want, right. and you enemies and they respect Yeah, them. in a case like that, certainly that is out of order for the, the believer. He should not be engaged in that kind of thing. Uh, if he can't be an influence where the guys respect him long enough so that when he is in, in there with them, uh, they say, you know, we, we can't we can't use this kind of language, he's having a positive influence. But if he has no influence whatsoever and they're bursting bad words right, left, and center and, and engage in other kinds of um, worldly activity, uh, he's in the wrong place, quite frankly, and uh, he's going to lose his testament, his witness. He's not going to have any influence with those people. Mm. Thank you and have a blessed night. You too. Say hi to the. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for the call. We appreciate it. Say hi to the wife, please. Have a good night. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.14. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. Thank you to those who have called in. Thank you to those who have sent in questions. We have a WhatsApp question from St. Kitts that has just come in. Good evening. From a biblical perspective, is there a difference between gender and sex? 
I believe that there isn't any difference. Isn't this homosexual way of pushing their agenda to get people sensitized to their position? Well, look, uh, the Bible makes it quite clear that if you are a woman, um, you're a woman. And if you're a man, you're a man. So the idea that uh, your sexual orientation is different than your gender is just a complete psychological um, misapplication to this whole thing. And remember that these people are trying to vindicate what they want. Um, and therefore, they're going to try to spin everything to try to make subtle distinctions. But a woman is a woman and a man is a man. A woman cannot be a man and a man cannot be a woman. Okay, And the, any, any kind of sexual activity that is a, a, uh, against the norms of Scripture, any kind of non-heterosexual activity, is evil, it's an abomination, it is sinful, it's ungodly, it's abnormal, it's unnatural, uh, and the Bible is very, very clear against it that it's going to be judged by God. So let us not fall into the same trap that a lot of these people are falling into. And here's the problem. They are going to use psychological arguments to try to uh, bring believers into their fold. And, and, and Christians are falling for it. And here's the reason why. We don't seem to believe in the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. So therefore, because our belief in Scripture has so um, deteriorated, that we are inclined to take on new ideas that are contrary to Scripture. There is no scientific fact that is really scientific that is contrary to any biblical principle that God has stated. And let's be very, very clear about that. That is why, um, as a Christian, you can't believe in Freudism, right? That your that your past is and your 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 unconscious what controls you. You can't believe that. Okay, the Bible is very, very clear in what motivates people to do what they're doing. And and the, and the danger I have said repeatedly is that when we send our students to theological seminaries. Uh, and we don't send them to the right schools, they come out with the same secular hogwash, and now they blend it into Scripture, bring it into the church, teach it in the church, and before you know it, the church has become psychologized. Not theologized, but psychologized. And that now creates problems. And when a person now begins to, to teach biblical truth, and uh, like he, a person who has grounded in Scripture and believe in Scripture now comes into the pastorate. What they were taught before leads to a clash. And the only way to resolve that matter is to go back to biblical truth. But many, many times um, it has to do with the, the fact that the, the, we become what I call a psychological society. And a lot of people now who are into pastoral work uh, go into seminaries and a lot of the thing is, 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 is teaching counseling. And that counseling involves a lot of uh, secular psychology, and that begins to take over. And rather than preaching the principles of Scripture, you find out that the pastor is doing more counseling using uh, psychological theory than using biblical truth. And that is one of the great failures of the church and why the church has become so secularized. Uh, away from biblical teachings. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, what about the listener who's saying, but Pastor, I've heard of individuals being born with like a male body, but female sex organs or vice versa. Uh, 
can that happen, and how should the church approach that topic? Well, look, I, I don't. I'm not a medical doctor, as you know, and this is a realm that I am not um, too uh, cognizant with. I do know that there's something called a hermaphrodite, where a person may be born with both both organs. But generally speaking, from my understanding of it, that the body structure. Uh, in, in totality would help you to decide whether or not this person is, you know, some um, freak of nature, and you've got to decide whether or not the, you 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 um, save which organ. I think that the, that's a medical decision that has to be made with the parents and with the individual, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But these exceptions and these aberrant abnormalities are used as a standard to carry over into normalcy. And that's the error that is being made and people falling for it. Look, we live in a fallen world and there's some biological um, freaks that are, are, are that happen as a result of all the, we don't know, some medication some years ago that people were taking the birth control led to children with defects. Some didn't have a hand, some didn't have a uh, foot, some of them were born totally deformed, etc., etc. Uh, we don't know the total medical effects, uh, uh, chemical effects, a lot of these things are happening upon us and that's why you have these freaks of nature. But um, generally speaking, when it becomes very, very clear that this person is more, it let, if, if it had a situation that is more of a male than he is a female, there are certain hormonal treatments that can be done. Uh, just like today, you can change a, a full man can now become a woman. When you see him a few years ago because of hormonal treatment, he has breasts, he has hair, his looks has changed, his whole body outline has changed, and that's the treatment of using these uh, these, these hormones, etc., etc. But um, I would say that that's something that has to be decided between the parent, the doctors, and the individual, where there's a, an exception of that nature. But let's not make this the norm, because that's not the norm. The other thing is this. Nathan, all of us are born with sinful desires. Every normal man is born wanting, and, and at some stage in life, wanting sex from a woman that is not his wife. So what is he supposed to do now? Hmm. Let that normal desire control what he's doing? No, the Bible says that sex belongs to marriage. Yeah. So as a Christian, you keep your line and discipline your line. And if you're a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. The Word of God is there to guide you. And many times you have to go contrary to your natural desires and your sinful nature. So here's a guy that is born and he finds that he has a feelings for men. So what does he do now? He does the same thing I do, or you do as a believer. This is contrary to God's will. For some reason, it is there. But I can't act it out because God says it is wrong. That's how Christians live. That's how Christians have always lived. But we are now living in a generation that have moved away from biblical truth. And now what guides us is the psychology of the times. And we, the church has swallowed that. And now we are living... Look, what I call the apostate church, we are now living in that age of apostasy. The remnant church are those who hold the biblical truth and will not bend or break because they're being forced to do something that is contrary to Scripture. We believe the Bible is God's infallible word. We believe that God knows best, and we know that we are sinful. And the best course of action is to live within the parameters that God has set for us in His word. While you were talking about the condition, her, 
Hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite. It's 1 in 1,500 to 1 in 2,000 babies, so it's a very rare condition. Yeah. But again, those people who, who have an agenda and who want to do what, what they're doing are always looking for the exception and make it the rule. Same thing with abortion, right? Uh, most people commit abortion, the child is healthy, they're healthy, but it's inconvenient. See, yeah. and it becomes a means of just discarding, and uh, that is murder. I will always call it murder, and any doctor that commits it, he is a murderer too. There's no question about that. It's just that he's a legal murderer, but he's still a murderer. Follow-up question or comment from the individual who asked about the difference between gender and sex. The reason I asked, because I realized that many Christians are being taught off-guard a seminar was held about it, and Christians endorsed it unknowingly. These are people; these people are so subtle with their teachings. Yeah. Uh, interesting that you should say that. Look, the only safeguard we have today, and I want to repeat this, is holding to Scripture. Remember that in Matthew chapter 20, uh, 20, 24, our Lord warns us four times that the the, the chief mark of the end times is deception. Don't ever forget that. Deception, deception. And the only safeguard against deception is holding to biblical truth. It's not what qualifications the guy has. He may be a doctor, he may be whatever. He might have a, he might have a, a whole uh, line of, of qualifications. Don't be impressed by that. Hold the scripture is the only safeguard against deception. As we wait any more questions that come in? Again, if you have a question, you can send it via WhatsApp or text to 268-782-1454, or you can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. As we await your question, we're going to continue with our topic of child abuse, specifically sexual abuse. Pastor, at the end of last week's episode, you were giving us an overview of the signs of sexual abuse. Can you remind us of those? Yeah. Uh, let me just backtrack one little bit in dealing with the signs, because I want to say a few general remarks about these yeah. signs. Uh, <coughs> one of the things is that knowing the signs help to give a voice to a child, because she may not even know what's going on and what's happening to her is wrong. But the fact that you become aware of the signs and you begin to question uh, it gives her a voice because she does. She, the other thing is that children sometimes uh, are scared to speak out. Uh, sometimes they think that what is happening to them is normal because they don't know what abnormality is. But if you can uh, uh, see signs and begin to question, you're giving them a voice because of their silence. The other thing is that um, though you may have a lot of these signs that, that might see some of the signs that we're mentioning, don't jump to conclusions that because you see these things and we've mentioned this, therefore something is going on and, and so on and so forth. There may be other factors that need to be, be concerned. But the presence of certain signs uh, um, might g may not give you conclusive evidence of, of uh, that this is occurring. However, it will help you at least to uh, try to monitor the child's activities more closely if you think as you begin to see some of these things, you know, maybe, well, you begin to monitor, to pay more attention to the child's relationship with the adult, uh, or, or other older children, if you think something might be going on, and then talk to your child about your concerns 
and your observations. Those are just some caveats that I'm saying to you that uh, don't think because it's science we mentioned you, you see some of them, therefore it's happening. But I think those little guidelines would help you in this whole matter of science. The other thing, Nathan, that, that we said last time is that Signs are normally categorized into four areas. They're what you call physical signs, emotional signs, behavioral signs, and they're what you call their sort of spiritual signs. We we started dealing with the physical one last time. We talked about, for example, if you see a torn or stain or bloody underwear that your your, your child is using, uh, pain or swelling or itching or some kind of discharge in the genital area or the anal area. Uh, painful urination or defecation in the case where there's buggery involved, uh, urinary bleeding or anal bleeding, uh, lack of control of the sphinx from mes- muscle uh, may indicate there's some kind of physical damage, that's the bowel movement of the child, etc., etc. An STD, clearly, if, it's, if a child has an STD, something is going on there. Uh, abdominal pains, uh, bedwetting, uh, change of toilet habit somehow that has changed you used to do certain things now that that has changed so suddenly uh, you become very suspicious physical complaints about headaches stomach aches abdominal pains uh, all of this are related either to infection or some kind of uh, anxiety loss of appetite not eating uh, night sweats or nightmares Basically, those are several, uh, 11 of the physical signs that would help you as a parent uh, to, to kind of gauge whether or not something is going on. Then there are what you call the emotional signs, Nathan. There's anxiety. And, uh, and anxiety-related uh, illness, we mentioned headaches, uh, gastric disturbances, sleep disturbances, eating problems, all of that can relate to the fact that the child is going through some kind of anxiety. Uh, panic attacks, um, apathy. Uh, the child used to be much more um, um, open and much more um, talkative, etc. Now they're very, very apathetic, etc. Depression, sadness loss of energy, uh, sometimes even making the sense that I, I wish I were dead. Those are kind of things. Mistrust. Uh, suddenly, they don't trust being with the person that they always wanted to be with. But how come there's this mistrust now? Uh, a low self-worth, seeing themselves as bad or making those statements, I'm bad, but they never made those statements before. You've got to find out why they're making these kind of statements. never given indication, etc. Uh, fear. Uh, and the emotion of fear, where they were certain, they felt comfortable with certain people and in certain places before, but now suddenly they are fearful of these people, are fearful of these places. And then there's what we call signs of uh, decompensation. The child seems to be falling apart psychologically. Uh, this symptom may, may infl- include the inability to function at school or at home. He was doing so well in school now. Uh, but suddenly he's having uh, bad reports. His, his, his teachers is indicating that he's daydreaming, and then sometimes uh, what you might call he might have psychotic episodes where he's now living a world of reality. He's talking about people and things that never happened before, as though he's there's some real person that's not there uh, that he begins to talk about. Uh, those are some of the uh, the the kind of. Um, emotional signs that are involved and then there are behavioral signs that uh, you need to look for example age inappropriate sexual behavior language that you're using that 
that's not the language in our home. Uh, role playing, they are playing with dollies, and now they're putting dollies on top dollies and doing things. And you're saying, but wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Uh, that should be a sign to you that he's seen something. Something is happening. Uh, I mentioned some uh, some uh, in, in the other part of the program using terms that are inappropriate that you you I hope that you teach the child the proper genital terms but now he's using terms for parts of his body that you were ne- never taught never used in the home but he's now using this kind of language um delinquency is another behavior uh, running away sometimes uh the only way to the only solution to deal with this intolerable situation of abuse is to just run away so he goes from you can't find him he's under the cellar he's gone to somebody's home uh something is happening there and you need to be aware of that um withdrawal or become an introvert uh, normally is very affable very friendly but now there's a sign of withdrawal defiance for authority he never used to be that way but somebody in his life that was an authority figure has taken advantage of him. Now he's so disrespectful. You might, but wait a minute, that's not my son. You've got to be aware of that. Fear of going to bed. Why is he fearful of going to bed? He never used to be fearful of going to bed. Excessive need for love and attention. Uh, now he clings to you in ways that he never clinged before. And then regression. And this is referring, going back to an earlier phase in his life, going back to a baby phase in his life, or acting pseudo-mature, that he's now acting more than his age. Those are things. And then self-destructive behavior, self-hurt. He's doing things to hurt himself, and sometimes, depending on how the child will be talking about suicidal, evil suicidal thoughts. And then unpredictable anger and aggression, Uh, sudden mood changes that weren't there before. Uh, Again, this... What's going on to him? He doesn't know to tell. He can't tell. He doesn't know what's happening. He's so confused. But he's now taking out his anger, uh, and that becomes very, very uh, obvious in that that situation. Uh, Not wanting to be left alone with a particular person or individual any longer. And you can't figure that one out, right? That's something else. And then um, uh, being very defensive now when they were touched when they're touched before you could touch the child and stuff like that but now when you touch the child you can see very clearly there's almost a reaction that is negative something has gone wrong there uh, uh, that should cause some concern and then the other thing it depends on the age of the child promiscuity teenager who's been abused and uh, mom doesn't do anything about it especially when you get to 16 17 you find that that person becomes very promiscuous and the reason to do that by the way is that in case they get pregnant they don't want to be impregnated by the person is doing it at home and they'll rather get pregnant with somebody outside that's their way of covering up that kind of a situation and um they might also sexually abuse other children they're doing things to other children that um are not uh, okay uh, and the other thing that I read of, uh, I have not experienced it myself, but I do want to qu- quote something here. They, they say that a child, in order to deal with this matter, can actually become two different persons. Uh, the name for that is DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, splitting off and becoming two different persons. I want to quote um, a woman who was abused She's not a psychologist, but she wrote a book about her abuse. She's being abused by her father. 
and uh, this is what she said. Her name is Marlene Van Deber, and uh, this is what she said. She said, in order to survive, I split into a day child who giggled and smiled, and at night a child who lay awake in a fetal position until I was pried apart by my father. Until I was 24, the day child had no conscious knowledge of the night child. During the day, uh, no embarrassing or angry glances ever passed between my father and me. I had no rage towards him at all because I had no conscious knowledge of what was happening to me. Anyone who knew me would say I was a, the happiest child. Uh, I believe I was happy, still incest colored every aspect of my life. Uh, and what the, 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 the victim learned to do was to disconnect their feelings in order to survive. And, uh, and this is where some people have what's called memory loss. And you'll find that sometimes a person who has gone to abuse, uh, they're going to a marriage situation, they have children, they're happily married, and then suddenly, for out of nowhere, uh, the husband touched them, and, and everything just flashes back. And now there's a breakdown of intimacy within the marriage, and it creates problems. And people can't understand what has, ha what has happened. And sometimes it is so difficult for her or him to tell the partner who was the, the, the perpetrator, because you want to protect them. If it's your dad, how many people want their dad to go to jail? Hmm. How many people want their mom to go to jail or an uncle to go to jail? So it's very difficult. You want to tell somebody, but who do you tell? Uh, and that you live with that so much in your life that eventually it begins to take a toll on you. And of course, uh, when we talk about the effects, the long-term effects, which we'll do in part of the program, uh, that is why those people have a difficulty who have been abused to really form any real trusting, lasting relationship. And that's why they become so promiscuous in life. They don't trust anybody any longer, et cetera, et cetera. But those are the um, the uh, the the physical and the um, emotional and also the behavioral uh, signs of abuse. And then there are some spiritual signs of abuse as well. Uh, children who have been abused struggle with, uh, for example, they might develop a warp or negative perception of God. Remember that our family, and especially our dad, is supposed to reflect who God is supposed to be. And that that they project that onto onto the parent, uh, they become angry at God because He did not stop the abuse. And as you get older, you learn that God is loving, God is caring, God can do everything. And then you you begin to put two and two together. And be, but wait, if this is true, how come this God didn't stop this? So it can really really hurt the person's relationship with God, distrusting God for allowing the abuse, uh, feeling rejected by God are unworthy of God because you feel guilty that you caused it now. So how can God uh, accept me and uh, am I worthy to come to God? So there are two extremes. One, you get angry at God. The other one, you feel that you're guilty. Uh, you allowed it. And as you get older, and depending on what the person is telling you, you feel a little bit guilty because, again, once sex is involved, there is some kind of enjoyment involved in it. So you can actually have enjoyed part of it and that leads you to think that you're responsible for it. So you carry guilt in that matter. So you don't want to go to God now because you feel that you're responsible. And and, and uh, so they have a difficulty forming a real relation with God. In many cases, they reject God uh, because this thing was allowed. So that is another impact that you have um, 
and so on. So when you find a child speaks negative of God and um, has anger at God, etc., etc., it could also be a very real sign that something is going on in the child's life that you need to investigate as a parent. That is a lot of material that Pastor has shared with you and very practical information. I'm sure there are people who have gone and paid much money to counselors that have received some of that same material. So I trust you'll be able to be on the lookout for it. Again, if you've just tuned in, the name of the program is That's Truth. We are discussing sexual abuse of minors and how to guard against it, what to be on the lookout for, and obviously approaching it from a biblical worldview. Pastor, why is this atrocity even in the world today? Why would a loving God allow that? Well, the reality is that uh, God de- God deals with man on the basis of choice. That's the first thing. People ask, well, he, he allowed sin. God cannot create a being like himself without giving that person freedom of choice. That's the first thing we got to understand. So God has to, in dealing with us, God has decided to deal with us on the basis of free will and choice. Right? Um, why God allows some things to happen to us, I can just share this I don't think my 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 wife would mind my sharing this with, with her because it's a public thing that she does with a lot of counseling my wife has been through that and it has opened a ministry to her that she never ever fathomed it would ever open you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting on 1160 AM 92.3 FM and online at radiolighthouse.org I'm sorry about that. Uh, I didn't realize my phone was on. Yeah, I, I was saying that, again, um, you know, you look back on life, and my wife would tell you that she would, she's never, re- she, looking back on how God has used that incident in her life to minister to people, because it was only after my wife started coming out and sharing this in churches that she realized that it was far more common Mm. that she she didn't even know there was a ministry there, quite frankly. But that emboldened other people to come to her and share what happened with them to get healing. And that led to from one thing to the other. And looking back on it now, uh, she would probably tell you that had it never happened to me, I would never have known how to deal with people who've gone through that. So in a sense, it is allowed because it's a greater good at the end. God has a purpose in the end. It's painful when it initially happens, but God can foresee that there is benefit beyond yourself to help other people. So suffering sometimes for us is never pleasant, but if it's a means of helping others, God can allow that. And I think that we want to be used uh, by the Lord. And when we look back on our lives, most of us look back on our lives and things that happened that were not pleasant. But looking back on that, we wouldn't want to change it because we see how that has been used by God to mold us and to prepare us for some kind of ministry. So in the long-time perspective, uh, God is looking at the future in terms of how your life can best bless other people. The other thing is this, Nathan. Remember that this is not all that there is. There's a day of judgment coming when God's going to deal with these matters. So nobody gets away with anything, basically. And we got to look at it that way. In the long term, uh, it is still going to be dealt with. But again, it may be a means of being able to minister to other people. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live, interactive call-in program. There's 
about 20 minutes left in tonight's episode. Still enough time for you to send in a question via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. Again, if you want to remain anonymous and you don't even want me to say whether you are in the Caribbean or whether you're in China or wherever you're listening from, we will keep it completely anonymous. The question will not be tracked back to you at all. You can send a question via WhatsApp or text to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four, or you can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Yeah, I want to say something, Nathan. You know, look, um, I believe when you look at history, we're living in the best world that is possible. I don't care what people say about that. God is sovereign, and God is ordering things according to his plan. We may not... I'm not saying that all that has happened in history was good. Evil happens as well. But I'm saying the fact that God is in control, the fact that the Holy Spirit is restraining humankind, we're living in the best world that is possible. Okay, I'm not saying that God's approving everything that's happening. I think we've got to look at it from that perspective because if we believe that God is sovereign, God always has a plan, the Holy Spirit is restraining, I don't see how we can think otherwise. And a lot of evil that has happened in the past, there's a lot of good that has come out of it as well. For example, I know that Caribbean people get high about slavery. Slavery was evil, no question about that. But would we have had Caribbean islands, independent Caribbean islands? Would we have had... Uh, when you begin to think about that, we would we, we have had um, populations going to different parts of what, like in South America and so on and so forth, had that not happened. I mean, when you look at it, you can't look at it all total evil. You've got to look and see where was God's hand in this and what was his plan. So it gives you a much, and it helps to ease the pain when you begin to understand that sovereign God is in control and he has a greater good in mind. If you become so narrow that you only focus on the evil, you become a very bitter person, a very resentful person. But you've got to have a broader picture on that man. Take Joseph, for example, Nathan. Look at what happened to him. Yeah. Betrayed by his own family, sold into slavery. But when he looked back on all that happened, he said, what? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He had a, 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 a theological perspective a long-term perspective, and he saw the good that would come out of it, and it didn't make, that's why he was not a bitter person. People who have a very narrow perception, a very myopic envision, will always have pain and anguish and uh, bitterness there, and resentment that is there, and mostly thinking of vengeance and revenge, but that is never the biblical biblical approach. Vengeance belongs to, to the Lord, right? Our job as people is to love and care and do whatever good we can but leave that to the Lord because he knows the all the mechanics uh, that are involved in this whole thing and he will deal with it ultimately I'm glad you brought up Joseph one of my heroes in the scripture but can you imagine pastor being falsely accused of rape spending years in prison and not being bitter yeah. Well, again, the Bible says that uh, the Lord was with Joseph. Yeah. And uh, whatever he did, the Lord caused to prosper. Joseph lived under the canopy of God's presence. And that's what made him not able to be bitter and angry and seeking vengeance. And that's how the Christian's supposed to live. Live in the presence of God, that God is ultimately in control of your life. I think the biggest problem with most people, Nathan, is that they're not too sure they're really children of God. 
they're not too sure that they're really a born again child of God because how do, how do I make sure that I am a child or how do I become a child of God? Well, very simply, the Bible makes it clear that you must put your faith and trust in Christ and the work that Christ did on the cross. But the other requirement, Nathan, is that we must be willing to see sin for what it is and repent of our sins and turn to him in faith and trust. When we do that, salvation is so very simple that the proud wouldn't bow before it. They want to be able to do something. But God has done the work for us, and all God asks us to do is to exercise faith in that work. Simple salvation, that's what it is. We're talking about the sexual abuse of minors, and you went into quite a bit of detail as far as signs to be on the lookout for of that there's possibly abuse taking place in the life of your child. You have any further uh, comments you want to make in that along those lines before we move on? No, all I would say to parents who are listening is that don't don't uh, believe that it can't happen to your child. It would never happen to your child. Uh, you might be surprised what is happening that you don't know. Um, look, I've known of situations even in, in, in um, Christian schools uh, where even in the situation where, uh, even though it's a Christian school, attempted burglary has taken place in in uh, primary schools. I can tell you that, quite frankly, right? And uh, and you you wouldn't expect that to happen, but the reality is we're living in a fallen, sinful world. And the thing I would say to parents above everything else is this: we are living in a pornographic, saturated society. Children know more than you knew when you were twenty years old. Right, and they're exposed to it every single day. Sometimes in the school they're going to going to. So you've got a, you're living in a different generation, and this is a real, real problem. Wake up, and, and don't wait for it to happen. Take proactive steps to ensure that it doesn't happen to your child, and pay attention uh, to these matters. Pastor, a question that many people have wondered is, why don't children tell on their abusers? Well, there are a number of reasons why that doesn't happen. And when it does happen, uh, they do tell, by the way. Uh, It takes a while. For example, 73% of those who are sexually abused take at least a year before they tell anybody. 45% take five years before they tell anybody. Okay. Uh, so that that those are the raw statistics. Okay, uh, let me give you something. Number one, they might feel guilty themselves of false guilt, assuming that the sexual encounter was their fault. And depending on the 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 the, uh, the maturity of the person who has done it to them, and the respect that they are held in by the individual, and their capacity to deceive and use language. They can twist a small child's uh, minor way of thinking, uh, and you you, you can see how that can be done. So they have a false sense of guilt, and therefore they feel that they're responsible. The other thing is they may feel a love and a loyalty uh, and an obligation to the abuser. He's been kind, he's been generous, he's given me things, uh, um, he takes me places, uh, he makes me feel good, you know. Uh, you can imagine, you can see, you can see how that can easily happen uh, with children. Uh, they fear that once they tell, uh, there will be a response of disbelief and denial, and the horror of judgment on them. Uh, again, and often the person who's the perpetrator will tell you they won't believe you, 
And if you ever say, I will deny it, right? What is your, so your word against mine, who do you think they're going to believe? And you can imagine a person saying that again and again in the child's mind. Uh, and if there's a person they respect and have had reason to believe in their good judgment in the, fu- in the past, that puts them in a p- part where they're fearful that they're not going to be believed. Um, the other thing is that they fear the abuser's authority and power. Um, I would like, wish I could share certain things um, that I learned recently that are true. Uh, but there are people in powerful positions that have done things to minors know that they've come to age and uh, and uh, so when you have an authority figure a powerful person in society uh, it's very very hard to, to go against that person uh, for fear that you will be penalized or your family will be penalized as well um, the other thing they feel threatened by the abuser because the abuser said if you tell this is what I'm going to do they might threaten them, threaten their family, threaten whatever it is. Um, the other thing is, is that they may fear uh, getting the abuser um, into trouble so that the abuser ends up in jail. And if they really value this person, respect this person, the person is a close family member or uh, whatever it is, a close friend, how many children you know really realizing that this might lead to jail time or lead to trouble would really want to tell it's very very difficult Nathan very very difficult Um, fear of being removed from their home Uh, if it's happening to and by the way the most common form of sexual abuse is incest okay so imagine yeah it's the most common form of uh, of sexual abuse is incest so imagine a child realizing that now and uh, she's been told or tell the person, say, you know, if you tell whatever, um, you might be removed from the home. Imagine having to leave your brothers and your sisters, leave your mom. I- imagine having to deal with that in your mind as a child. Uh, the other thing is they have a deep sense of shame and guilt. Uh, again, it because because they have a false guilt in this matter, and it, it, it's not easy to tell those kind of private things that happen to you without feeling embarrassed, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, they fear getting into trouble themselves that uh, they would carry around. So fear of breaking up the family, causing divorce, um, and then the fear of the response to the parent. Uh, if the person, the parent is very, very emotional, very angry, uh, lose their cool, they might fear that the parent might do damage to the person and, and cause more harm now, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the other thing is fear of public opinion. When it gets out uh, and the public know that I've uh, been abused, how, how many people can deal with that? That is almost like a scar, uh, a public scar that you have to live with the balance of your life. So th- th- so those are some of the basic fundamental reasons why uh, people, are, children are reluctant, minded reluctant to share these kind of things. I know you can't put everyone in the same box. And I will come to my question in just a minute as we are wrapping up this program in the next five minutes. We have a question that's just come in from Anguilla. Good evening, gentlemen. Pastor John 3.16 is so explanatory, and yet there is a set of people on the street that preach that it is only meant for the Jews. I've never, uh, I must surprise you, that, uh, that might be happening in Anguilla. I've never heard that um quite frankly before so I'm, I'm a little bit uh, surprised that you have people saying that's only to the Jews that's to the world 
For God so loved the world. I mean, how can you make that to the Jews when it's very clearly explicitly stated that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life? I mean, to my mind, that's a distortion to, for anybody. I don't know how any Bible-believing person could ever believe that that's an exclusive promise made only to the Jews. Uh, that gives you an idea, as I said before, the apostasy has begun, the Bible is being distorted, and people now need to return to biblical truth and the proper interpretation of the Bible. And that is a task that we have as pastors because the delusion and the deception is already there. And now it's almost like we've got to teach basics that were so fundamental before. It's very, very clear we're living in a very illiterate generation in terms of biblical knowledge. And the great challenge we have now is to bring and call people back to truth. But uh, let us correct that, my dear brother or sister, whoever sent it in. And let us take a stand against those things and speak the truth to these matters to show them that this is completely a distortion of that particular verse. One of the greatest uh, evangelical uh, evangelistic verses in the scripture is now being um, pigeonholed and put into a cubby hole where it only relates to the Jew. This is really a tragedy of our times if this is really happening. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, I know we can't put everyone into a particular cookie cutter, but from the approach of the abuser performing the sexual abuse of a minor, what is their philosophy or their strategy to try and keep a victim silent in many cases? Well, um, the victim, victim, uh, victimizer fears being found out. So what he does basically, fundamentally, is try to shift the blame uh, to the victim by downloading a lot of guilt and creating a lot of fear. It's an evil game of deceit. Uh, so there are a lot of things that he does. Uh, for example, if you share our secret, it will break my heart. You know, imagine you really love a person, really care about, really trust a person, and they're laying that down on you, on a on, on a young person. Uh, if you share that our secret, mother will feel hurt and mama will get sad. Who wants a young child? Wants their mom to be sad and disappointed? Remember, don't take your adult mind to understand what is happening. You're dealing with a minor now, and you can understand the f- affection that they have. Uh, if you tell, I, they won't let me see you again. Now, what if this person has really been a person that's been attached to this child for such a long, long time? Think think, think of what that means, etc. Um, if you tell, mommy won't understand, and she would leave us. Who wants mom to leave us in that situation? Uh, or mom would divorce me. Uh, in a case it's, it's a, uh, a, a father or, or whatever it is or our family will be destroyed if you tell who wants to destroy a family you would rather keep a secret uh, than to, to, to want to carry the burden that I was responsible for destroying my father and, and, and destroying our home um, if you tell I'll tell them that you wanted it too Oh, you imagine telling a child like that now, and you are a person that people trust, they believe. Uh, she doesn't think that the, the, that people would just side uh, uh, against uh, on his uh, against her. Um, she, in other words, she takes that very very seriously. Um, I would, if you tell, I would say that you started it first. 
how do you defend yourself against that? This is a person the parents trust, whatever it is, and uh, you come in telling them now, and they say, no, no, she, she tried it first on me, or whatever it is. The young person is not in a position to judge strongly what is being said. They're judging the emotion and for the fact that they attach. Um, if you tell, I won't love you anymore, uh, again, if you tell, I'll kill you or I'll kill myself, how many people you know want to carry the burden that I'm responsible for the death of a person? Uh, and, and by telling her that clearly, um, or you'll get your parents in trouble, they won't believe you, or if you tell I will hurt your mom or hurt your dad or hurt somebody. In other words, it is clearly using and shifting blame and trying to keep the person in silence uh, using every form of game of deceit uh, by, uh, by the adult person in this situation. Uh, if you take those lists of things and put them in your mind as a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, I'm not too sure that you can grapple with that. Think of the consequences you can have if you reveal that to somebody. You're more prone to be silent. For the victim of sexual abuse, whether it was as a minor or as an adult, is there hope is there healing? There's always hope and there's always healing. And the thing that you need to understand that if there's a sense of guilt, even though it's false guilt, guilt can be forgiven, it can be pardoned. And God can forgive you, pardon you, and the Holy Spirit can begin to heal you as you get a loving uh, company of people around you that work with you uh, in the process of becoming a whole person again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. Be sure to join us next week as we continue this topic. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.